This episode is sponsored by Recut, which is running a wild Black Friday sale. Hey, welcome to the Upload Iceberg. If the upload is the content that you see above the water as the viewer, I'll cover the journey and data behind growing a YouTube channel that you can't see in the murky depths below the surface. I'm Dan, and this is episode 7, recorded after hitting 3,100 subscribers on October 18th, 2023. Today is November 25th. I've returned from Colorado. I'm in Pennsylvania, um, and we just hit 3,200 subscribers overnight. So I think once we're done this episode, um, we'll be all caught up and we'll kind of dive into the current analytics period at the start of each episode before we get to individual videos published and everything else going on behind the scenes. So kind of episode seven, starting a new trend, kind of a new beginning. First seven, we're fumbling around. Now we're now we're cooking. So that's what we're going to be headed through. Before we dive in, you've heard me talk about Recut before. It's on a wild $39 Black Friday sale through November. When you use my affiliate link below, Recut is a tool that helps you automatically remove silence from your videos, aka it does your jump cutting for you. It's a no-brainer product if you do any of this type of work. I've already saved hours over the last several weeks. It has a fully featured trial and it's only a one-time payment, not paid monthly. So if you spend time cutting video, now is the time to give it a try so that you can decide before the deal ends after November. All right, for title, I think we'll do something about on the road, road tripping, going to Colorado 2023. The 28-day milestone period here for this episode is September 21st through October 18th. It's kind of our overview tab here. Not really sure what I'm going to do for the thumbnail. I'll probably point to some mountains or maybe something I've shot in Colorado. I don't know. I don't have any props. Again, this is the contrived thumbnail that I am deprioritizing. In this period, we've got the 100 to 400 review coming out and we had a potty episode. So kind of light for video output, although I'm pretty happy with one a month. Um, during this period, kind of the bigger things were laying the groundwork for the 28 to 35 comparison video that we'll talk about in the next podcast episode, kind of the last hurrah for the 35 millimeter. That is kind of a prime example of how I want this channel to go. 35 is something I picked up years ago, use it for a ton of photography, paid work, personal work, uh, like the half macro, use it on this channel, tried 28 and found out, you know, as I was using 28 as a pilot, kind of a test to see if I could get away with a 28 faster prime weather sealed as opposed to a 16 to 35 15 to 35 kind of found out in that trial that i liked 28 what we're shooting on now this is the sigma on the r8 um, like 28 more than 35 so the 35 has been packed up sold um, used it in colorado kind of for the last time to wrap up that video and i think um, like i was saying that's a perfect example of what i want this channel to be lenses in context over the long haul how my opinions change you know life cycle purchase to sale if they don't end up staying in my bag forever and 35 had a great run it's a great lens but I like 28 a little bit more and 28 i've only been using for around a year i think i've had the sigma for just about a year uh the 28 pancake i don't have it around but the 28 pancake obviously a ton smaller and a great opportunity to use 28 in a much smaller form factor for me not sure if i'll keep both 28s forever uh, but shot a lot with 28 on this trip as well other thing I was laying the groundwork for was this video podcast, what I'm calling Crash Course. Video Podcast 101 Crash Course for YouTube. And this was a massive video. You know, I'll be linking it probably on these podcast episodes as a guide for 
you know, I know a small percentage of people on this channel or even in this podcast might be interested in starting a video podcast themselves, but kind of wanted to make that guide as an artifact that I could point to over and over and over. Here's an hour of content. I've tried to keep it dense. If you're into looking to get into this type of thing, here's how I would think about it. And here are some quick tips. So I'll continually link that on this show as a, an encouragement piece of content because I think starting out is such a hard hurdle for people. And um, this video was a little bit of an interesting thing to launch to the existing subscriber base, given that we mostly do Canon cameras and lenses and other, other tools, you know, had high hopes, but low expectations, experimental by nature. You know, we'll get more into the analytics for this video in episode eight. I plan to do a shorter version of this video, kind of more YouTube centric, um, full YouTube process. It'll share a lot of the similarities between lighting, cameras, audio, uh, but it'll be a lot shorter, more geared toward YouTube. And then I'll be coming out probably late 2023, early 2024. I haven't completely scripted that yet. So if you have specifics around this process, the YouTube, like the main video process that you'd like to see, let me know. Otherwise, this was kind of other thing I wanted to say is that it was an excellent exercise to make 52 minute video. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of different challenges that come about with creating a piece of content that long. You know, if you're listening to this, you might be a photo first shooter, larger into photos than any kind of video work at all. But I'd encourage you to take an analogous, chunky, big project and start working toward it. And that might be something like a photo book, physical prints. If you haven't done any of those before, it might be something like trying to get your work published somewhere or to have somebody share it. But I learned a lot in biting off like this massive chunk of a video. And I think even if you're a photo first shooter, there's a lot to be learned from you know, picking up a project that doesn't feel super doable in the moment and just kind of taking steps toward that. This was a video that I worked on uh, for weeks, probably months, maybe two months at a time at different times. So there's your encouragement to bite off something chunky. Now, if we get into analytics, we started doing this last episode, maybe two episodes ago, where I want to get to a better place where we have some benchmarks and we can more easily relate some of these numbers because I know jumping into somebody else's analytics is tricky to begin with. Um, so for this period, again, September 21st, October 18th, we've got about 19,000 views, about 875 watch hours, 66 subscribers, and 43 bucks. So kind of the high-level 28, um, 28D period analytic metrics, click-through rate of about 8%, and, uh, and an average view duration of around three minutes, which is pretty static. You can see this doesn't change a whole lot period to period, at least on this uh, sort of time scale. If we look at revenue, kind of calculated this out, average revenue for this period was 152. That's kind of our quick relatable metric that we'll keep hitting over and over. The low, probably this 106, and the high for this period, $2.27. That's kind of revenue metrics for the period. You can see November will probably finish just around the same as October. This is a weird period. Like a lot of people make much more money in this you know, Black Friday holiday season. Um, channels, especially ones covering consumer electronics, kind of really tend to kick up. So we'll see what happens here. So we'll see what happens here moving forward. But I don't, I don't have a ton of content coming out around Black Friday specifically or at all. So I don't expect any kind of massive jump. I don't have, I don't have any videos banked you know, intentionally to come out during this period, knowing that people uh, make more in AdSense, make more in affiliate revenue, not trying to play anything. <laughs> I'm not sophisticated enough to have videos in the backlog to come out during this time period. And I think another thing on the analytics front that we'll start to do uh, more often is pull up this period over period in the advanced uh, analytics tab. You can see on the left here in this teal, we've got 
what will moving forward be our current 28-day period. We've got our September through 18th, October 18th here. And then if we look at this custom, um, I'm sorry, if we look at this comparison, so let's just in case you don't know how to pull this up, we're going to go to advanced. We have our period here from the podcast. We're going to compare to period over period. It's going to pull this custom, we'll call this podcast metric period, and then line this up with the previous 28 days. Not super interesting, right? This is kind of bouncy depending on when I publish. Uh, probably a video published on this day, October 1st. We come back here. Yeah, September 30th, we're pushing out this 100 to 400. So that's where you see the spike. As you can see in the previous 30-day period, depending on when we publish videos, I'm not on a regular schedule, so there's not always going to be an analogous publish in the prior period. Um, so this isn't super interesting. If we start to do this period over period comparison, 90 days, uh, 120 days, half a year, year, then it starts to maybe become a little bit more interesting as I continue to grow. In this video, I'm not going to dive too deep into the analytics for the 100 to 400. In this episode, we'll hit that. I think in the next one, we'll dive a little bit deeper. This is kind of like good start, happy with how things are going here, kind of in the high range of normal at the moment. Slow, steady growth, like a lot of the videos here. So nothing, so nothing that deviates greatly from normal. Uh, browses beaten out YouTube search in the last 48 hours, which is cool to see. This is also a longer video than my typical. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a different beast trying to figure out how to keep people that long and how to keep the video helpful and entertaining over that full 10 minutes for me, right? Some people have that down. As someone who has a small channel, a little bit harder to put together a strategy there for myself and and make these longer videos count and be useful for the full 10. Um, didn't try to extend it, just had kind of a lot to say. This is a lens that I've used for a good portion of the year. You know, a lot of it's new to me shooting this long. It's also new shooting with a lens this dark. So just a lot to, to say and get through here. Also had a ton of examples. Really, really enjoyed this trip, which is what I'll remember from this video mostly, is kind of this trip and seeing and spending a lot of times trying to catch these herons. So we'll dive into that a little bit more in the next episode. For the trip itself, spent a lot of time shooting 28 and 35. Like I said, the 35 review or the 35 compared to the 28 review was kind of um, thesis of the channel as a whole. One of those videos, like really happy to dig in, kind of put some, some updated thoughts on those two lenses in comparison to each other. I spent a lot of time shooting with the Canon R8. Like one of my more favorite things to do is when I have two bodies and I briefly had the RP and R6 together. Um, during this period, I have the R8 and the R6 together. Taking out the two bodies, getting the lens on both, you know, ditching some of that lens switching um, and really kind of keeping two different use cases on those capture clips. So shooting long on one of them, a lot of times with the R6 and then, you know, kind of having that small package R8 28 millimeter on the other side and just kind of you know, going out hiking, taking pictures, having those two use cases right at hand without switching stuff out is uh, really nice. And the R8 is solid. Uh, really liking this camera. It's going to sort of be, uh, I hate to say studio camera, um, but that's really how I'm going to continue to use that through when I expect to keep it, maybe mid end of April, 2024. So I'm going to be looking to to move this when I plan to move it, kind of a super long-term use and, and try in an effort to have two bodies uh, during this time period when I knew I'd be making more content. It's been super helpful to have two bodies again. <laughs> now that I have two, I'm going to really miss it. There's definitely going to be a big hole in my video lineup. I've been using the R8 because it doesn't have a record limit. If I have it set up to record something here at the desk, I can still have my R6 with the larger battery, with the double 
memory cards with the battery grip as my main photo camera out in the field. Don't have to repack a bag, can just get up and go, leave this camera here. It's gonna be a real big bummer to sell that. Also, it's the same form factor as the RP, but it has improved on all of the shortcomings of the RP. The RP was kind of tough if you're doing anything in 4K. I think there was a massive crop. It also starts to have contrast-based autofocus and struggles to even kind of lock on focus for a like simple talking head here, even at this distance when not moving around a lot. So I was struggling with that. I remember using the RP to film shoot in 1080, upscale, I think was the most reliable way to get a talking headshot, which is fine. You gotta do what you gotta do, use what you use, but it's nice to produce work at 4K, um, future-proof it a little bit, it's a little bit, a little bit crisper. The R8 obviously shoots much faster in stills than the RP, so it's really nice to use for some of that wildlife stuff. You know, if I had gotten the R8, the functionality in the R8, at the same time I had gotten the RP, I might not have ever upgraded to the R6, at least so quickly. I might still be rocking just the R8 if it had as many features as it did at the time when I got the RP. So really solid. You know, I think the downsides are kind of limited to the same things that you would jump up to the R6 or R6 Mark II for. Probably want a bigger battery, though. I do pretty good just having one extra battery. You know, I don't have a pile of these. It's just the two. When one when one dies, plug in the second. Obviously, just one memory card, so makes me get a little finicky about using it for professional work or even on this Colorado trip when I was shooting stuff that I was excited to catch. Um, you know, a couple times during the day, I would swap a memory card in case it failed, then I wouldn't lose everything from that day. Not as rigorous weather sealing. I think, you know, I had great weather, so not something that came into play during this trip. And um, if there is bad weather, I make sure to kind of pack and use the R6 primarily. So I'm not really, that's the tough thing with two bodies and trying to, to give them real hard comparisons. It's like, I know that the R8 has these weak points. And so if I'm going out on a shoot or a day where I think those weak points might come into play, you know, I'm going to reach for that R6 so that I don't miss a whole lot of stuff. Um, but I have been shooting pretty hard with the R8. It also, like that overheat warning, that'll come up. It pops up pretty often when shooting on hot days for a long time. The second you start doing some like 4K 60 clips intermingled amongst still shooting, it comes up, shows you how hot. You have a lot of bandwidth there. I've never had it like overheat and stop yet, but just the fact, like it's good to get the temperature bar up there. It's good to know how close it is to stopping. At the same time, the second it comes up, I'm kind of like, ooh, getting a little nervous. The other stuff I shot with on the trip, and maybe I can throw in a quick collage of some of these, was the 85. Actually, let me grab that real quick. The 85 just continues to be, making sure we got the eye here. The 85 continues to be one of the, my favorite primes when shooting for hiking because it's super light for what it is. It has a lot of the reach that you kind of want when shooting people or even just, I don't know, more zoomed in landscape looks. Weather sealed, obviously not being currently sold still, I think, um, not supported, but you know, I, I struggle. I, I don't know. I just like isolating the subjects. I, I like using it for landscape, even at 1.4. If you see something sort of subject-like in the distance, pick it out. Um, kind of like that foreground blur. Just really liking this. Have always for hiking, walking around outside. I think, you know, one day, I think I've said this before, I'd love to get like a Canon L Prime. Just one of them. Something that, you know, kind of, I know it's the best of the best, edge to edge. I'm in that 1.2, range. The 135 is fairly enticing. I think there are times when I wish 
particularly when shooting people I'm hiking with or that I could just be even further away from them and still pick them out. Um, and I love the 70 to 200. I've said a lot. That's probably still my favorite lens if I had to pick one. So getting something smack dab in the middle of that range fast at 1.8, like the 135 still is really enticing though. I know it's going to be heavier, probably, yeah, definitely a little bit longer. I'd like to try it, but it's kind of, I don't know, picking, picking one of these L primes is going to be really difficult for me over the long haul because I think the 50, the 518 is, or just that focal length in general is a little bit more versatile than 85. And so I struggle to, I struggle to leave the 50 at home and it's good that it's small. You can kind of always figure out a way to pack that in the bag and have it um, as a backup. If you want to go a little bit wider than this, still get all the low light capabilities, still get a lot of the same look. But I think probably if I had to guess right now, going a little bit further, having that 135 would probably be really something that I liked. I just can't see getting a chunky 50 and keeping the chunky 85, you know, relatively chunky here and a 135. Like a lot of that's not compatible. And so that's one of those things where probably going to be a lens that I wait for a long time to figure out exactly which one I want to get from a focal length perspective. And the other thing I shot a ton on was the 100 to 400. It was the first time I was able to shoot past 200 on a real trip. I obviously mentioned and spent a ton of time using this 100 to 400 on several trips, all local. But the one thing that jumps out immediately is being able to use the 100 to 400 to shoot mountains in the distance and just different landscapes than, than we have here in Pennsylvania. Obviously, there's a chance of seeing a lot of wildlife. So a lot of deer, a lot of birds caught a bald eagle, which was super cool. We'll talk more about that in the next episode here. And, you know, we'll, I'll probably do a whole nother video around the 100 to 400 specifically on this Colorado trip, just to go over some of the landscape and some of the animals that I was able to catch with that. So I'm looking forward to that, you know, ton of, ton of new images with this lens since this review, which is a little bit of a shame. You know, sometimes that happens with videos. Kind of had been using this for months and months and months. Kind of wanted to wrap up my thoughts. Had a lot of pictures. And I think it's good to show the progression. I'm pretty new to 100 to 400. Pretty new to birds or wildlife at all. Have used it for many months. So it's good to get something out. And, uh, you know, we'll follow up with the second video. But also would have been cool to make like a really more comprehensive video with everything that I had from this trip, but that's sometimes how it works. The other thing, taking a big long trip like that is something that you don't realize can be a little tricky from like a storage and drives um, or even around just the bags and packing. I want to do a long-term review of the F-Stop Ajna because this was the first time I took that on a really long road trip and I take both bags, uh, but you kind of use everything from a storage and bag perspective a little bit differently on a trip like that. At least I do. It's easy to get kind of uh, paranoid when you have all of your drives and all of your cards on your person all the time. It's not, you know, I get really personally paranoid around leaving the bag in the car at all. So basically, I put everything absolutely essential, you know, the bodies, biggest lenses, storage and drives in the Talopa, the bigger bag, so it can fit everything that sits in the driver's seat, and that comes on my back wherever I go, even if it's a short little stop into the gas station. Uh, that's not that's not getting left in the car. I also, when I'm making videos like this on trip like that, I don't have some of like the slower, larger five terabyte spinning drives that I would normally back things up to. And so a lot of times it's actually a little harder to make videos on a trip like that. I'm often exporting different drafts over the course of editing and then a lot of times uploading those drafts 
iteratively to the cloud. I use Dropbox and I'm doing similar things with the edited stills on a trip like that as well. Last topic for today, and this is kind of an oddball, um, but thinking a lot about this on this trip is it was the second time I took a large road trip, second time spending considerable time in Colorado and driving to get there. Wanted to bring up this graph from Tim Urban. If you're not familiar, it's like a blogger, I guess, author, author more accurately, um, but does a lot with blogs, some really popular ones around, for one, artificial or super intelligence. He has some pretty interesting blogs about. They're extremely long. I'll link them below. He's just an interesting thinker and pretty clear in describing how he's thinking. So I know some people are probably sick of hearing about AI and super intelligent things like that, but I think these blogs are really worth taking the time to go through. And if you don't have strong feelings one way or the other around some of these topics, Tim obviously is going to give you some really basic stick figure, kind of funny animations and lay out a lot of the bigger topics in any realm that he's discussing or writing about. And so, you know, I feel pretty aligned with a lot of his views, um, not everything, but if you don't have a stake in the ground on some of these bigger, wilder topics, it can be really helpful to go through his blogs, his writing, and just kind of go through and check, check, check whether or not you agree or disagree or have different thoughts. But if you don't have any stance on AI, if you're not wildly excited or scared, it can be good to kind of go through, get some information from someone who's researched a lot and has a lot of experience in relaying these complex topics in a simplified way, just to get an idea of how you're feeling. Now, this I don't know exactly what this is from. Pulled it from one of, it looks like an audio book, but he has this graph, audio listeners, no good for you on this one. A graph conviction on the y-axis, knowledge on the x. And the dotted line through the middle, which kind of signifies, ideally, in any given realm, you might be confident in your knowledge in such a way that you would lie along this center line. Your kind of center line is like comfortably humble in what you know. And um, I pull this up because I've, I've, I've conceptualized my road trips and sort of and photography and YouTube along this graph. And so first, I think if we look at, uh, let's get into example and how I feel and how I'm thinking about this for myself. I think it'll make more sense. So I'm going to talk about how I feel on this journey, conviction knowledge from both a photography and YouTube perspective because for both of those things, photography and YouTube, I'm feeling in the insecure canyon. Step four on this chart here, feeling ashamed and embarrassed about not knowing that much. And I'll expand on it a little bit. Um, but at the top, we've got Child's Hill. Pretty damn sure you know a whole lot and are feeling great about it. Step two, right about to fall down this hill. Again, high conviction, low knowledge relatively. Questioning whether you actually know that much. Uh, this poor fellow tumbles down the hill quite steeply. Step three, acknowledging that you don't actually know that much. And then you land in step four, feeling ashamed and embarrassed, not knowing that much in Insecure Canyon before finally step five, realizing that knowing how little you know is the first step in becoming someone who actually knows stuff. Following this S-curve of progress, tightly coupled along what I'm calling this confidently humble line of knowing exactly what you know and don't know. I think the implied message here is that it's noble to strive to ride this line as close as possible, which I tend to agree with. Up here on Child's Hill, you're kind of a, you know, you're in danger of becoming a little bit of an asshole. Insecure Canyon, you could be doing a lot better here if you had confidence in your abilities that you actually have. In Insecure Canyon, you actually do know more than nothing, and you could be performing better or feeling better, at the very least, if you had a little bit more confidence, conviction about 
what you actually know here, which is more than a good number of people, potentially, in any given field. When I think about this for photography, first road trip felt here, kind of like, I don't know, shooting a lot of different things for the first time in a much different place than I'm used to for an extended period of time and shooting kind of daily, weekly, editing daily, weekly. Second road trip is kind of like, oh boy, uh, it's been two years. I feel like I'm a little stuck in progress. And I think on the photography side, on the photography side, I know I like taking pictures, hiking, traveling with and of friends and family. Uh, I like the landscape aspect. I like the memory preservation. I've talked about my Instagram feed as kind of a repository for my own memories. And I like having that self-expression then I know there are things that I definitely don't like, high stakes shooting, sort of like what I imagine wedding photography would be, engagements, shooting people for money. I, I know others get a lot of enjoyment probably dealing with people in those scenarios and shooting. I find it stressful. I also think a lot of those things are a little bit commoditized and that makes me feel something, that's for sure. Um, or, or kind of all this to say like paid work without having control in environments, particularly where you would um, gain something from being more extroverted than I am. Th those are kind of all in the dislike bucket. Uh, I know I like on the gear side, trying different things, trying different focal lengths, experimenting with composition at the different focal lengths. And I know to the extent that I'm able to, you know, get access to different things and try them over a long period of time before deciding whether it's in my bag forever. I get a lot of joy in that kind of like iterative improvement on the gear. I think that's why a lot of people and you tell me a lot of people are watching like gear YouTube or photography YouTube um, for tips, tricks, but also to see how people iterate on their gear in an effort to take shortcuts for themselves. So they're not buying things or using things that might not fit for them. I love the photo editing specifically. I think it's a big part of why I like photography, like spending the time in Lightroom and Photoshop. Sometimes, depending on the type of shooting, even more than spending time in the field. And I think I'm getting more consistent there, but I don't know. And I think why I feel like I'm in an insecure canyon is kind of more in this next part is I think I'm struggling with curation, style, things like that. I think I want to or need to make the transition from, you know, not everything, but shooting largely everything I see to, you know, shooting only the good half of the things I see, editing only, you know, the good half of the things that I now shoot once I've cut that down, and then maybe even sharing only you know, the good half of those heavily edited photos to get down to like that really core good, I don't know, what is that, 10, 12%. Um, I really like to kind of focus on that in 2024. At the same time, kind of need to lean into some stylistic choices, want to define that for myself, and then get better at reinforcing kind of some of the stylistic choices that I make in a way that I'm not doing now. I think the secret to go from Insecure Canyon to the start of this hill on the photography side is really you know, I've learned this multiple times and kind of have to keep relearning it each time in different in different magnitudes is to shoot often. Just like there's no way around it. If you want to get good, you have to shoot a lot. And I think at some point, you know, if you want to really get good at something, you have to start spending considerable time and you can't do that for everything you want to get good at. So you have to start even picking the things that you want to get good at to start saying no to a lot. And I think I'm struggling here with is photography photography something that I want to get really good at. At the same exact time, if we're viewing photography and YouTube separately, I think in this context, it makes a lot of sense to do so. I also feel exactly here and, you know, struggling with a lot of things like, what do I get out of sharing? What do I get out of growing? How do I scale from, you know, hundreds, thousands to tens of thousands, if that's even possible on my path? Why is it worth scaling? Should I scale? 
Um, like big chunky questions like that and what I get out of it. Making YouTube videos feels great for me. It feels like one of the things that lies in the intersection of some of the skills that I have and some of the things that make me happy. And so I think naturally scaling makes sense. I often talk about the thesis of the channel, year long term in context. The thesis of this podcast, I think, is if you're listening to this episode, whether um, recently after I've produced it or later, if you find it and are kind of walking back to the journey at 3000, you're kind of starting to get a taste of, okay, this is something that's growing. I know other people have started to you know, chart their path past this and can start to incorporate this into you know, a channel into some of their work. And it feels like you have a lot of control over your time, your schedule, what to work on, what to do. And for many people, myself included, that is juxtaposed kind of with like traditional work life where you have a lot less of that autonomy. And so that is super addicting and a reason to scale potentially. And you're, you're kind of asking yourself the same question. Is YouTube something that you want to be good at? What other things do I like? Am I willing to set aside to kind of pursue that? How, or how, like said a different way, how do you borrow enough time from other things in your life to put against YouTube? And I think for both photography and YouTube, you start to wonder like, okay, I need to kind of, or I want to kind of dip into like traditional work time, that nine to five, 40 hour chunk. How can I, you know, how can I steal some time from that to really make this, to really make this something that I start to become good at? And to steal time from that nine to five, you have to be making money with photography or YouTube to be able to justify you know, spending that big chunk of time. And so can you cross over a little bit and get into that bucket? Can you take that time? And then if you can cross fully over into that bucket, like if money were no issue, all of those 40 hours become time that you could spend. And so it's a little bit overwhelming to kind of put myself in this position of, you know, 2024 is where I hope to make the jump from step four to five here, potentially in photography, potentially YouTube, potentially both, one or the other, maybe neither. Um, I'd like to try to figure figure out what this looks like in 2024 not necessarily make the jump in either um, but see if i can kind of understand what needs to happen between here and here um, and that's probably something you know even to identify those steps maybe takes more than a year but i want to make pretty good progress here and and i'm hoping to have the time to explore fleshing out the little steps that it might take to get from here to here and see if that's something that i want to pursue more seriously. And I think, like I said, regardless, it's going to involve shooting a lot more and editing a lot more, really focusing on style, probably trying to figure out the best way to learn quickly from others in terms of stylistic choice, developing a better eye for others' styles, developing a better eye for others' editing. It's kind of overwhelming to think about a little bit, but that's big time goal for me next year. And on that very heavy note, that's about all I've got for today. Episode eight is going to go live either at the same time or shortly after. So go give that a listen if you're digging these and I'll catch you later.